In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The day has finally come. Our collect last week for the Sunday after Jesus' ascension eagerly anticipates the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, who arrives today with fanfare and spectacle. We commemorate this event that happened millennia ago, all the while asking ourselves, what does the coming of the Holy Spirit look like today? Because we remember not just that the Holy Spirit was poured out once upon Peter and the other disciples, but that the Holy Spirit dwells within each of us. Pentecost, this feast day of the Holy Spirit, is then an opportunity to stop and ask what it means to be a spirit-led people. We'll start by looking at the act or at the event itself in Acts 2. Now, Pentecost was already a feast in its own right for the Jewish people of the first century. Fifty days after the Passover, they offered their first fruits up to God. But beyond that, 50 days after the Exodus was when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the law. So just as we remember Pentecost as a formative moment for the church, as the people of God, Pentecost was already celebrated as the formation of the people of God in Israel, into its identity as a kingdom of priests. And there's kind of a parallel between the two. Well, there's many. But just as Moses disappeared into the cloud at Mount Sinai and came out of it with the law, which would show the Israelites how to be God's people. Jesus has disappeared into the clouds in his ascension, and the Holy Spirit came down upon the disciples, who would, the Spirit would direct and guide the church into its mission. In both cases, God chose to reveal himself to form and inform, so that his people could live more fully into their humanity, and in so show God's ways to the world. It's important to note that these kinds of parallels, though, are only seen in hindsight. God's action usually can't be predicted with any sort of specificity. So when the disciples gathered to pray, all they knew was that Jesus had told them to wait in Jerusalem and that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. What exactly that meant or how it would happen was still unknown. In fact, what happened was strange enough that it required an explanation, an explanation that began with Peter saying, don't misunderstand, we're not drunk, it's only 9 a.m. in the morning. He goes on to quote from the prophet Joel, and the verse he reads includes these apocalyptic events, which were important not as particular predictions, but as signs that what God had promised through the prophets was coming true. Now, the New Testament authors knew the Old Testament better than we do, and when they bring these texts to the forefront, it's important to spend a moment considering their context. So we'll look a little bit at this passage from Joel. The book of Joel, like other prophets, includes descriptions of a coming judgment, In Joel, it's depicted as an army, like a swarm of locusts. It includes an invitation to repentance, and then the promise of hope for those who would turn to God. Now, the chapter leading up to what Peter quotes in Acts probably would sound familiar because we read it every year on Ash Wednesday. It begins with, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, a day of darkness and gloom and thick darkness. And Later, yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And it's after this, and after a declaration of God's vindication of Israel and their restoration, that Joel then writes that God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. So to kind of sum up, the promise isn't just eventually you'll receive power generically, but when I have rescued you, it won't just be a rescue, but I will also pour out my spirit. God isn't just offering himself to his people, but offering himself to his people 
who have turned back to him and have been rescued by him. And so what does the pouring out of the Holy Spirit look like? It's chaotic and disruptive. It's the sun turning into darkness and the moon to blood, fire, and smoky mist. The Spirit showing up is unruly, violent wind and fire, fire descending. It's uncontrolled. Let's not miss these terrifying portents, which are much like the plagues that were on display before the Exodus. And when Joel writes that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, it's saved from the calamity of the day of the Lord. God is doing something remarkable, saving his people, pouring out his spirit on them. But there is no peaceful transition of power. It is a cataclysmic event. I think part of our problem is that one of our primary visual images for the spirit is the dove. Now, let me be clear, I'm not criticizing the gospel writers or the spirit who inspired them for how they describe Jesus' baptism. But the species of animals that existed 2,000 years ago would have been a little bit different from the animals we know today. This is, of course, true of all animal species who have evolved throughout the years, both naturally and through human intervention. I am fully aware that my family's miniature schnoodle, a cross between a miniature schnauzer and a miniature poodle, is unnatural and would not have existed in the first century. This is a change over time. And so we have to step back a minute and think, okay, what is this bird that came down upon Jesus? The dove we find in scripture might be better translated rock dove or maybe even pigeon. The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism like a pigeon. And what a different picture that gives us. Pigeons are common. They're what the poorest Israelites offered as a sacrifice. They're everywhere. The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a ubiquitous sacrificial offering that came from the poor. Pigeons are also unruly. And so if first century rock doves are anything like modern pigeons, they do not care about your commute or your delightful day in the city. As you walk by, they will pay you no mind. You are in their way. They do not follow your lead. And the Holy Spirit is similar. The Holy Spirit is both ubiquitous and yet not a thing to be wielded or coerced, but gives direction. The Spirit does not care about our attempts to control or manipulate. The Spirit is no respecter of social decorum. The Spirit is poured out on even the male and female servants, the lowest class of society, who speak and prophesy the word of God. Now, the bird comparisons may get a little strained. A number of years ago on Pentecost, I pushed this point a little further, likening the Spirit to a wild goose. But if you look throughout Scripture, when the Holy Spirit shows up or is poured out upon people, it is not predictable, it is not expected, and it is disruptive. Think about the Spirit rushing upon judges to give them strength. Think about the Spirit showing up in a dream to redirect Paul to Macedonia, where he goes not into the synagogue or the place where the philosophers argued, but was directed to a women's prayer gathering on the edge of town. The Spirit hovers over Jesus at his baptism, but then it drives him out into the wilderness to fast for 40 days. And when he returns, Jesus arrives in the synagogue and says that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him to proclaim good news to the captives, the poor, and the sick. And when you read Luke's gospel in particular, you know that the good news preached to the poor came with woes proclaimed to the rich and the powerful. The Holy Spirit does not care about our plans or our preconceived notions about what should come next, about how things should be. And yet, we constantly want to box in and control God into carrying out our wishes. I'm reminded, or I was reminded this week, of a Bud Light commercial that shows a bunch of people engaging in game-time superstitions. So they're spinning remotes or wearing mismatched socks or insisting that their jerseys don't get washed, all in order to try and affect the outcome of the game. And the tagline is, 
it's only weird if it doesn't work. And we all laugh, but did I wear my Edmonton Oilers jersey on Wednesday for the first game of the NHL playoffs? Yes, I did. After they lost, did I not wear it on Friday and instead try to get my son to wear an Oilers hat for game two? Yes, I did. When big things are on the line, we all want to try and influence the outcomes, especially when we feel like we can't. We try and grab whatever we can to try and make a difference. But when it comes to the things that really matter, the Spirit demands that we step back and look for where He might lead us. Now, practically speaking, this might sound like a rhetorical move towards a sort of procedural anarchy. Anything goes. Just go where each person perceives the Holy Spirit to be moving. And certainly many have used the outpouring of the Spirit as a pretense for grasping a different kind of power. And it may be tempting even in light of all this to falsely seize control in a different way, tearing things down and blowing up structures all in the name of a Spirit-led disruption. But the Spirit doesn't disrupt for the sake of chaos. In fact, it's the Spirit who hovers over the chaotic waters of creation, bringing them into order. And the church that was empowered by the pouring out of the Spirit on Pentecost wasn't built on chaos either. Paul wrote a lot about order in the church, from orderly worship to the character required of pastors to how to use gifts of both prophecy and interpretation so that those prophetic words from God would be used to build up the church. Disorganization isn't the point. The work of God is radically disruptive, but it's focused. At Pentecost, they didn't all start speaking in different languages and saying whatever they chose. They all spoke of God's deeds of power. Power not just to be wielded for the sake of the powerful, but to be poured out for the sake of the world. Pentecost is a mirror for the Tower of Babel. In both cases, God intervenes to disrupt what people were doing so that his plans could be fulfilled. In one case, it's the dispersion of people who wanted to rally around a monument of their own making. In the other, it's the unification of disparate people for the sake of the mission of God to bring good news to all of humanity. But in both cases, it is sending people out to go do what God called them to do. And this all sounds good, but it only happens when we are open-handed, willing to receive from and be directed by God. We have to see the Spirit not as a pure, docile dove that rests on us only to make us feel better, but as one who will drive us out of our areas of comfort and direct us and invite us to call all nations to hear that saving work of God. We have to be open to being led and then faithfully take those steps in faith. I want to close by reflecting on Joel again. So the prophecy that Peter quotes is not just about final things, but about the end of exile. God's people had been through hell and high water, and they were waiting and hoping for God to show up and restore them. Now, God did restore them, but while the people had returned from Babylon long before the events of Acts 2, there was still a sense in Jesus' time that something was missing. Some sort of further restoration was required. They were still in a kind of exile. But God doesn't restore his people to go back exactly to the way things were. God doesn't rescue his people to get things back to normal. This is what the disciples want, right? When are you going to restore the kingdom to Jerusalem? When are you going to reestablish what we had under Solomon? God's design for humanity has always been a path forward. And when we find ourselves off the path, lost in the wilderness, God doesn't just put us back where we stepped off, but redirects us to where we were supposed to be headed. Or maybe to think of it another way, God has given us a compass heading while at sea, and when we find ourselves in need of a course correction, he doesn't have us turned around, but reminds us of our heading so that we can continue to sail where he is leading us. 
Following the Spirit isn't asking ourselves, how can we go back? Instead, it's, where is God directing us next? We tend to want to make towers of Babel, and God wants to knock them down and point us outwards to the world, to pour out his Spirit and send us out to go where he is leading. I've been very slowly making my way through a book called Why Nations Fail, uh, as an attempt to learn a little bit about macroeconomics, a topic that I like to have ideas about but don't have as much data to back them up. But it's there that I learned about an economic concept called creative destruction. It's when a new advancement come, comes and destroys some of what was in order to bring about something new and better. For example, the Industrial Revolution and steam power really hurt the horse-drawn carriage market, but what came out was more prosperous for society as a whole. And sometimes in order to go where God wants us to go, there has to be some creative destruction. Now, that doesn't mean the spirit that the disruption that the spirit brings doesn't mean that God wipes the slate clean and starts all over. When God rescued the Jews from captivity, they did return to the land promised to them. Jesus was the fulfillment of the law, not its replacement. God's work of leading is always the next step in an existing journey. And perhaps the things that we would be scared to lose in such an act of faith are things that remain with us as we go where the Spirit leads us. But maybe they aren't. And when we're lost in exile and in need of help and direction, we're not the best people to sort out where we went wrong. And we need the Spirit to guide us. But that is very good news. Because I think... Each of us in our own lives know the places where things aren't as they should be. We know the relationships, the situations, the jobs, the neighborhoods, the social issues that are in need of redemption. And in many cases, we know that our best efforts have yet to be able to make them right. We can't, by our own power, by our own insight, set them straight. But the God who made heaven and earth, whose power raised Jesus from the dead, seated him in the heavenly places as the one true king, that God sent his spirit out upon all flesh so that young and old men and women would speak of the mighty acts of God and that all who call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. May God pour out God's spirit upon us. May we be willing to go and do whatever it is that God is calling us to do, letting go of our fear and our need to control and following him where he leads, trusting that it is a good path. And find that in doing so, we would know his salvation in our own lives and the lives of those he is sending us to. Amen.